All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Resurrection Day. We thank you because it reminds us of the great resurrection of our Lord and our real hope and uh, the promise of the future. But we're also thankful for the daily blessing that it is and the weekly blessing that we are reminded that you've resurrected us as well, that in the midst of a dark and dead world, you have given us life and hope and light and help us today to see that, to renew covenant with you and to make a fresh commitment to walk with you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're continuing our discussion about how to love our families. And families are really hard to love. Um, They're made up of sinners. That's true of churches. That's true of our immediate families. And people do things wrong. People sin. People uh, hurt us. People, we hurt other people. Uh, our relationships are always in this state of uh, us rubbing against each other. And the Bible is given to us, the Word of God is given to us to direct us what we're to do about that when that happens. We're to repent, we're to forgive, we're to restore, we're to be renewed. And that is not one time, but that's really on a daily basis. And so it's difficult to love each other. Remember, the goal is a communion of love. And so, uh, as we just witnessed here in our, uh, in our hearing, is somebody got some discipline because they're loved and they're being trained to be part of the community. And, uh, and so, as we talk about loving our families and developing this communion of love in imitation of the Trinity, as he made us, uh, as we were originally made without sin, to be an extension of this Trinitarian eternal communion of love. But sin disrupted that. Now the work of redemption is to restore that, to bring us back to a place where we have this communion of love. And so we've talked about husbands and wives and what they need to do and how they reflect uh, Christ. As husbands love their wives, as Christ loved the church, as wives love their husbands, as the church loves Christ, and then as parents are reflections of the Father's love to the Son. And then we began to talk about how children love their parents as the Son loves the Father. And I want to continue with that. That's where we left off. You'll recall that uh, at the close of the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Malachi uh, said that um, God was going to send a prophet, Elijah, who would restore or return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest God come and smite the land with a curse. And, of course, that was a a prediction, a prophecy, if you will, about the coming of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and indeed the opening of the New Testament in Luke, the angel uh, speaking to Zacharias, uh, the, the father of John the Baptist, said indeed, quoting from Malachi, that he indeed would return the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's what God did with Abraham. He said, I want you to focus your heart, your attention upon your children, to teach them, command them to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness so that I can bring to pass this blessing of redemption, the gospel, and and ultimately be a blessing to all the nations. And so this is not something 
that is an aberration. Uh, it's not something new. It's really what God's been doing all along. And, of course, um, that is the work of the gospel. So, kids, what is God's will for you? I don't mean what is his ultimate will. What I mean is what is his will for you right now? What is his will for you today? To be a follower of Jesus, of course, means that you actually follow him, that you obey him, that you imitate him. And remember, he is a, he's a son. And so we want to look to him as a son to see how he acts. How does he love his father? That's the model. That's the standard that we have as children. He is the master and you are the disciple. Often teachers ask students to do things that students don't yet understand, uh, but the teacher knows that this is a good thing for them. In time, the student will come to appreciate the value of what the teacher has required. And so good students trust good teachers. The Bible only gives one direct command to children. It has a couple of parts. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So that's all you have to do. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it can be broken apart a little bit. Honor your father and your mother, Ephesians 6.1, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so obedience and honor are, are two ways of saying essentially the same thing. Honor, the way we honor our parents is by obeying them. And in that obedience, it turns out that we get wisdom and that we live prosperous lives and we live long and we, we are blessed by God and that's the one thing he requires of you. And so, kids, imagine that I'm going to give you a baby. There you have that baby in your hands. What are you going to do now? How do you feel? You would all of a sudden, your focus, your attention becomes everything. Well, that's how your parents feel about you when they look at you, when they held you. And all of their focus, all of their sacrifice, all of their dedication shifts to you, just like you will your children. Are there exceptions? Yes, because there are sinful parents that don't do it perfectly, don't do it as well as others. But essentially, as Christians, God gave you parents because, number one, you needed them. You couldn't function without them. You were utterly dependent upon your parents for everything, for food, for shelter, for comfort, for all those things you needed. And God gave that to you. Uh, to teach you that you're dependent also upon him. And so, children, you are to love your parents as the son, that is, Jesus, loves the father. Honor, father and mother, obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Imitation, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. And glory, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So as children, you understand 
that you are a reflection of your parents. And parents, you should understand that about your children. You can't escape that. It's one of those inescapable concepts. Now, maybe that's physical. Maybe you look like a father or a mother. You have a family resemblance. But more than that, there is a covenantal connection. So whether you're biological or adopted, when, when those are your parents, you are to reflect them in your behavior. And our kids pick up some things automatically. Um, Good habits, bad habits. In fact, the Bible tells us that the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children for three and four generations. And so kids, as you learn and grow, some of the things you should learn and grow from in regard to your parents is if there are sinful qualities in your father or your mother, you should outgrow those. Your parents want you to, by the way. I want my children to do better than I did. I want them to be more godly than I am. I want them to learn from my failings and to improve upon them, and the Holy Spirit and the work of sanctification can do that so that generation after generation, things are getting better, not worse. But if you don't self-consciously do that, if you don't say, you know, my father had a bad temper, And yes, it's easy to say something like, well, I have a bad temper too because my father had a bad temper. Well, what are you going to do about that? You have to self-consciously pray and work and memorize Scripture and work to not have a bad temper. Why? So that your children don't have a bad temper. It is easy to just pick up whatever you, you grew up with about how you resolve conflicts, about how you communicate, about how you pray, about how you go to church, about what you do with your money, about how you talk to each other. All kinds of things are picked up automatically, and unless you self-consciously think about them and say, these are the things I want to retain, and these are the things I want to improve on, then you will carry that forward for three and four generations and more. But thankfully, the Bible says that God blesses a thousand generations who are righteous. So there is always a connection between parents and children in terms of transmission of either righteousness or sin. And so parents, we have this enormous responsibility to be careful about what we're putting in the stream because it is going to flow downstream and have an effect. And kids, you have an obligation to... Learn from your parents to pick up from, from those things and to uh, honor and obey them. And, and it doesn't say honor and obey them if they're perfect parents. It just says honor and obey them. So unless they're requiring you to sin in something they've commanded you to do, your obligation is to do it and to do it cheerfully and with honor. One of the key features of a broken, hateful, divided world is manifest in the relationship between children and parents. Romans 1, 28 through 30, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, malice, uh, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. That's part of that long list of sin. 
of a rebellious generation of people who turned away from God. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, But know this, that in these last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. They go to church, but denying the power thereof. This inclusion of disobedience to parents is not some isolated thing in this list. These things are connected. These things go together. That's how you get all these things. Proverbs 10.1, A wise son makes a, glad, makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a grief, the grief of his mother. Proverbs 23.25, Let your father and your mother be glad, let her who bore you rejoice. Proverbs 30.17, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. God does not look favorably upon those who disrespect their parents, who don't honor their father and their mother. And so, remember, the goal is loving communion. The goal is for me to say, whatever role I have in the house, father, mother, husband, wife, or child, brother, sister, my responsibility today, God's will for me today is to say, what can I do to contribute to the loving communion? That's true in the church, and that's true in your family. What can you do to make this a better place? How did Jesus honor his Father? Again, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Therefore, Matthew 5:48. therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So you imitate your parents and their good qualities and improve upon their bad ones. Luke 11.2, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Honor the name of your family. You carry that name. You represent your family wherever you go. When they see you, they're going to say, we know what that family's like at home. We can tell by how these kids behave. Then Jesus answered and said to them, John 5:19, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. John 5:30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5:36 But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me now if you're being raised in a Christian home and you have a father and a mother that are bringing you to church and giving you a Christian education and teaching you these things however imperfectly but essentially you've been given a gift you've been given something to bless you to change your life. And if you reject that, if you turn away from that, if you disregard that, if you treat it lightly, the Bible says things are not going to go well for you. 
And I can testify that I see that all the time. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 6, 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is this uh, unavoidable connection between parents and their children. And so I want to urge each of you in your respective roles at your house or in the church to ask that question. How can I make things better? Let's, let's think about some very practical things because sometimes this, is, this can seem very philosophical. If I just tell you all to go home and be more loving and you come back next week and I say, were you more loving? And you might say yes. And then I ask your mother, was he more loving this week? Well, I, I didn't really notice. Well, one way you could do that is you could ask your mom or your dad, how could I be more loving? How, here's a way to put it. How could I contribute to the peace and love of this household? Remember, love is about service, so get ready. Well, you could pick up your dirty clothes every day and put them in the hamper. That would be really helpful to the peace of this house because that's one less thing I've got to come behind you and do. You could make your bed, take out the trash, or if you're just walking through the house and you see something that's not where it belongs, you don't have to just assume that fairies are going to come behind us and take care of that. You could take care of that. You say, well, I didn't put it down. She did. Yeah, well, so? Sacrifice. Bend over. You know, when you make that trash shot and you miss the trash can, walk over there and put it in the trash can. Don't leave it laying there on the floor. Wash the dishes, mow the grass. How about say some nice things to your sister or your brother? Boy, that would, as my mother used to say, if you did that, I would faint and fall on my face. Surprise your parents with such things. Wow, he complimented his sister. She actually was nice to him today. She said, she, she said thank you, and, or I appreciate you helping me with that. You see how those little things could radically change the communion of your house? Instead of just, don't you hate being taken for granted? You do something and nobody notices? Well, why don't you try by do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? Why don't you start noticing what everybody else is doing for you and say thank you? Walk up behind your mom when she's standing there doing the dishes. Put your arms around her and say, thank you for loving me and taking care of me every day of my life. And then walk away. You don't think that'll change her life? You don't think that'll make her more joyful and in a better mood? You see, being in a good mood really changes the peace and the communion of the house, right? When people are thankful. What does God say one of our great sins is? People refuse to give thanks. Romans 1. They didn't say thank you to him. And they become self-absorbed and selfish and, and disregard all the gifts they've been given. But when we're grateful, we're humble. Because when we're grateful, we're reminded that I can't do this by myself. That food that was on the table tonight didn't just appear out of nowhere. Somebody had to work, make money, 
Somebody had to go to the store, and somebody had to cook it, and somebody's going to have to clean up afterwards, and you're going to help with that, of course. But other people had to do things for you to exist and for you to live. And you being grateful for it, instead of snarky and copping an attitude and running off to your bedroom and being all by yourself, instead of having to be around those, you know, your pesky little brother or little sister, you're not contributing to the peace and to the love and the communion at your house. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ever have a little bit of alone time. That's not at all what we're saying. You're important to the family, but you're not all important. You're part of something bigger than you. We're to reflect God, the Trinity, at our house. That's the first place that might be the most important place, because if you do it there, you'll do it everywhere. And if you don't do it there, you won't do it anywhere. Does that make sense? God sees in the secret place. He doesn't want you to be a Pharisee where the only place you are nice is in public, where everybody can see you and reward you and tell you you're a nice guy. He wants you to be a nice guy when nobody's looking but him, when nobody appreciates it but him. He'll bless that. When you're not doing it so somebody will reward you, but you're doing it because it pleases your Heavenly Father. And it's the right thing to do. And if that's your habit, God will exalt you in due time. He will use you. He will bless you. He will magnify you. He will bring glory to himself, through you, and he'll bring glory to you. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about glory in the sermon today, but glory is a way of magnifying something, of making it bigger. And so he'll take puny little old you and take you as a nothing, somebody who's learned how to be a servant, somebody who's learned how to do things when nobody else, do the little things right when nobody else is watching, and he says, that's the kind of person I'm looking for. I can use that. And I'll use it in a big and a grand way to change the world. But that's where it starts. And that's essential. That's how you can love your family. Now, I'm going to shift here for the remaining few minutes. I want to read the 23rd Psalm. You're familiar with it, but I think it sets before us this beautiful image of how we start our week out right by coming here to this big family we call the church, this broken conglomeration of, of sinners who are all in need of love, all in need of learning how to love and how to sacrifice and making progress in this communion. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Notice in a theme here, it's his work. He's doing something in us. We're not independent. It's not all about me uh, taking care of myself. It's about a recognition that I need him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What are we reminded of when we come here every Lord's Day? That we belong to him, that he's with us. We're not alone as we walk out the doors and go through this week. The Lord is with me. His rod, his staff will comfort me. 
You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We have the Lord's table. And it is prepared right here in this big old bad world. And we come here every week and start around this table, and it's his table. He prepared it for us by sending his son. His son is our food. And so we start here at the beginning of the week. I know you've heard this a million times, and I hope you hear it a million more from me because it might be the most important thing that we get in our bones. Okay? Remembering who he is and what he's done for us and remembering who we are and why we're here so that we go out the door and live and we come back next week and we do it over and over and over and over all the days of our lives. Okay? And that's going to fit in here with this psalm, of course. You anoint my head with oil, yet my cup runs over. You see the gratitude? That when we're reminded of these things, we remember what he's done for us, that it's refreshing. He anoints our head with oil and our cup runs over. We're thankful. Lord, you've blessed me so much with this family, with my family, with work, with your word, with your spirit, with beautiful days, with education. I mean, I just go keep going on and on and on. My cup runs over. Surely, for certain, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. There, it's, the, it's a wake. It's, in my, it's the trail wherever I go because God is blessing. There's goodness. Good things are coming out of whatever's happening, even the bad things. God brings good things out of the bad things. How long? All the days of my life. If that's the habit of my life, if I'm following my shepherd, then this happens all the days of my life. And notice how it concludes. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This place of loving communion, this family, this home, his house. So the liturgy, what we do here on the Lord's Day, the the order of service, if you will, all the things we do from the call to worship to the benediction and everything in between is a token. It's, a, it's designed to set before us an outline, if you will, an outline for our lives. But it's not something we're just doing, and I, I recognize this is repetitious for many of you. These are themes that I have talked about for years, but again, I want to draw a focus on them because the idea is, and the Bible does this, the Bible repeats itself over and over and over because we're kind of slow, and that's the way we get it ingrained. But the liturgy, we're practicing the liturgy for life. I've been to churches that have a very formal liturgy, and I've even seen people, you know, kind of looking at their watch or, you know, obviously paying very close attention. They want to know when this is over so that they can get back to real life and check off their religious service. But what we're doing here on Sunday morning in worship is, should be seen as uh, choir practice, as uh, uh, athletic practice to get ready for the game, to be able to go out and actually do those things at our house, to actually not just have communion at the Lord's table in this formal way, but to have communion at our house where we actually do love each other and put up with each other and forgive each other and encourage one another and are thankful. This is the Eucharist, the table of thanksgiving. So we go home and we do that. And if we're not doing that, then this is phony. Then we're missing the point. This is 
we're, we're just, it's sailing over our heads or something. This is about, this is imminent, uh, intimately connected to what we do at home. It should be. And so, again, we start the first day of each week gathered at the family table to renew our strength in preparation for the week ahead. Again, we're not doing the liturgy, we're living the liturgy. Think of liturgy as the wedding of the invisible with the visible. It's not just the bread and the wine that we see and taste and smell and feel. It's not just the words that we hear. It's not just our five senses that are engaged. They are, but that's the meaning behind it. The presence of Christ. There's a reality beyond those physical things, those visible things. There's an invisible reality behind all of that. And so spiritual truths are then embodied in these physical actions. Think, think about how, how that's related. Uh, teachers, well, especially and teachers and parents. Um, I know I've been teaching a class before and some student, is their head's turned away or they're looking down. And I'll say, sit up and look forward and pay attention. And the student might say, well, I was paying attention. I was listening. And they might have been. But I understand that there is a connection between their bodies, their eyes, which, which direction their head is facing, and their hearts and, and their attention. Now, is it possible for you to have your head turned, and like right now, and you're looking at me, and I think you're all listening, but your mind is somewhere else. Yeah, yes, that's possible. But the point is, there is a connection, usually, between our physical posture and that invisible reality that goes with it. You can fake it, yes, but it's best when the two things are brought together. And so we, we kneel, for example. Why are we kneeling? Because we have kneelers and we think it'd be cool. Looks, looks really nice if we take a picture of it. We're kneeling because of what? What are we trying to say in kneeling, in that posture? We're humbling ourselves before God. It's, a, it's, it's about what's going on in our hearts. Could you do that without kneeling? Certainly, and you should. But kneeling is a good reminder, if we think about it, of what ought to be the attitude of our hearts when we confess our sins. That we bow before the Lord our Maker. We kneel before Him. It's a routine, the liturgy is, designed to inculcate spiritual realities into our lives. Liturgy, so, so for example, our call to worship is God's Word beckoning us, but then the collect, we, all, we begin that opening prayer in the worship is, is it always begins with some adoration of God. We're not just rushing into the presence of God uh, with our list of wants and, and needs. We, we enter into his presence by honoring his name, by recognizing who he is and, that, and who we are, and, and praising him for that and remembering that. That changes everything. It sets our attitudes and our focus in the way that it should be. Um, and liturgy is an inescapable concept. If we didn't have an order of worship and we just came here every Sunday, and uh, we're going to do something. And I'd suggest that even churches who say they're not liturgical, they are, because inevitably some habits 
are formed. We sing a certain number of hymns. We sing them at a certain time. We, we know that we have a certain expectation of when the sermon's going to be and how long it's going to be and, and when the service is going to end. And all those things develop inevitably, whether we put it on paper or whether uh, it changes a little bit from week to week. Inevitably, it's there. It's inescapable. And so right now, everyone who is in church and everyone who's outside of church is practicing some kind of liturgy. So everyone who stayed home and stayed in bed today and didn't go to church is practicing a different kind of liturgy. And it has meaning too, whether they know it or not. It's, it's saying what they think is important and what's critical. So wherever people are and whatever they're doing, they're sending that message saying this is what's important. This is the most important thing, in fact, on this first day of the week. That when given a choice of sleeping in or getting up, we sleep in. Sleep, getting my rest is really important. Very important, right? God wants us to rest. It is a day of rest, right? And so a lot of people have that kind of thinking. That's, that's the mentality. And the liturgy is consciously or unconsciously instructing them and their children about God and all of reality. This is what's important. This is why there is, as you've also heard many times, there is nothing we do each week that's any more important than corporate worship, to come together. And together, to know that, aren't you encouraged when you know you're not the only one? I know when we do family camp and we have people from other churches come and we see God's doing something in Houston and Fort Worth and Texarkana and San Antonio, wherever we're encouraged by that to see, oh, God's, God's working there. Too. In fact, I heard one of the young people from one of the other churches as we were there at the camp, I think it was during the dance, and they, I think actually their mother uh, said to me that her son said, I wish this could be our church because there's more people. There are more young people. And that was exciting to them because they're in a smaller church. And so when they come together and see others, they're encouraged by that. And likewise, when we come together, we're encouraged. And that's why it's not just about me, my presence, your presence. We encourage one another just by being here, by being able to see that we're walking together in these things. And so we gather then at a particular place, and that is the table. Our families called together uh, here to eat before God, to fellowship with Him, with a particular people, that is the household of God. Not just anybody, but these are God's people. These are the people Jesus died for. And then we are sent forth to live with fresh focus on life. Having come together, uh, it encourages us, reminds us, to go back out. You see, again, other liturgies teach other lessons. It's all about me. I'll decide on Sunday morning whether I'm going to go to church or not go to church or sleep in or go do something else. It's really about what I want, not what God wants. I think we will stop there. No, no, we won't. We're going to go one more page. Uh, it's a good stopping place after this. 
So let me say something about the profundity of the Lord's table or communion. Remember, communion of love is what this overarching theme is, how to love our families. And this, that includes this family. There has always been a close link between the church's understanding of the nature of the sacrament of communion and the attention that she gives to it. Use tends to follow perceived significance. If it doesn't mean much, then we would expect to see it used very little. When the communion table is neglected, then I believe the people of God are malnourished. What a man thinks of the Lord's table is a clear indication of what he thinks, what he will think of Christ, what he will think of the church, and what he'll think of theology itself. R.C. Sproul said, The light of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is in eclipse. The shadows of postmodern relativism have covered the table. For the Lord's Supper to be restored to the spiritual life of the church, there must be an awakening to its meaning and its significance and its power. Calvin wrote, God has received us once for all into his family to hold us not only as servants but as sons, Thereafter, to fulfill the duties of a most excellent father concerned for his offspring, he undertakes also to nourish us throughout the course of our life. And not content with this alone, he has willed by giving his pledge to assure us of this continuing liberality. To this end, therefore, he has, through the hand of his only begotten Son, given to his church another sacrament, that is, a spiritual banquet wherein Christ attest himself to be the life-giving bread upon which our souls feed unto true and blessed immortality. The signs are bread and wine, which represent for us the invisible food we receive from the flesh and blood of Christ. Now Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ that, refreshed by partaking of him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have reached heavenly immortality. Since the table is diminished and disappearing from the church, it is also diminished and disappearing from many of our families. The two are connected. Fast food and drive throughs have replaced the family table in many places. This follows in the wake of seeker-friendly worship and a casual view of the Lord's table. Eating together, you see, around the table means something. And so I'd ask you again to reconsider or consider the practice at your house. I don't, I'm not saying, look, every trip to the Lord's table is a little bit different, and every trip to the tables at your house should be a little bit different. Sometimes they're more casual, sometimes we're in a hurry, Sometimes it's a hot dog. Sometimes it's a gourmet meal. Sometimes we get out the good dishes. Sometimes it's paper plates. There's all kinds of things. It's life. All kinds of things go on at our tables. But the one thing that ought always go on is communion. Talking to each other, loving each other, serving each other, helping each other, being thankful to each other and for each other. All of that ought to go on, whether it's paper plates or china whether it's hot dogs or filet mignon. 
All of those things should happen in various forms every day as we love one another. Otherwise, we become fragmented and we lose the communion and we lose the love, the service, the sacrifice. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the communion of love that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we thank you that you created us to extend that into the world. We acknowledge that our sins have disrupted that broken relationships, brought in uh, that which tears apart the love and the communion. But we're thankful for the gospel that has restored that and that you are at work in us, in each of us, to make it, to, to bring back that communion of love as you originally intended. Help us to do that as a church. Help us to be long-suffering with one another as we labor together to learn how to do this. Help us today as we come to this table to be reminded of those things and to take it to heart and help us to export it to our house to be sure that these things are completely connected and that we learn how as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers and children, brothers and sisters, to love one another so that the world might know that we are your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.